Welcome to You're On Mute, a moment of introspection celebrating Black History Month brought to you by BBI, the Black British Initiative, in association with Sotheby's Brilliant and Black, made possible by podcast strategist 4DC. BBI believes racial injustice is a societal-wide issue only eradicated with the support of all races, genders, and age groups, and challenges social injustice through business enterprise. This special series will focus on business sectors where traditionally there has been black underrepresentation, normally due to systemic, structural, and cultural barriers. These limited edition podcasts encourage a moment of introspection on a sector by sector basis with identified category leaders asked to share experiences and details of any practical achievements made since the 2020 killing of George Floyd, which symbolize a high or maybe a low point for prioritizing racial justice. Collaborating with Sotheby's as it opens a second edition of Brilliant and Black, a world-class selling exhibition and talent platform for black jewelers, I'll be speaking to four leading voices, delving into the rarefied world of fine and high jewelry to learn how great levels of racial diversity has become an invaluable and growing source of fresh creativity. So I'm privileged to be joined by Melanie Grant, luxury editor of The Economist 1843 magazine, and three extraordinary jewelers introduced in alphabetical order, Lola Olundunjoy, Maggie Simpkins, and Cheryl Jones. Now, let me start with you, Melanie, if you could. 1843 magazine is, I get it, and I read it, but you tell our listeners about it. It's changed recently, but it basically it's a digital hub on economist.com and we do long reads and human interest behind the news. So when you have a big topic like, um, say, the war in Ukraine or something of economic significance, we do a very long, deep dive of analysis into it. So that's kind of what I work on most of the time. And um, we've just produced the first summer issue of The Economist as well, which was a lot of work and very complicated and very interesting to work on. Um, and so, yes, I've worked at The Economist for 16 years and um, 1843 magazine is the founding year of The Economist. You've been with The Economist a long while. I've been a, a journalist all my career and I've worked in lots of other places, uh, the BBC, The Times, Independent, The Guardian. But I specialise in jewellery as, a, as a, a topic. Throughout the last decade, I've sort of concentrated on the interplay between economics, jewellery and art. Now, Cheryl, just give us your earliest memories of jewellery, what you held, what you knew, what you felt. Well, I'd say my earliest memory of jewellery was my mother's jewellery. As a child, I remember seeing her wedding ring, her diamonds. Uh, She wore a lot of fine jewellery. And I remember being fascinated by it and loving it and, and wanting to learn more about stones and minerals and, and really sort of developing a passion from that point. And where did this passion come from? I think it was just a natural curiosity about what makes something shiny, what makes something brilliant, what, what makes something sparkle. I guess I'm a, big of a bit of a magpie. I've always been drawn to what sparkles. And I think that that fascinated me then and it continues to hold my interest and fascination. So you were brought up in Ohio, Cincinnati. And yes. did that, would you say that had any influence on the kind of designs you were attracted to, the things you looked at? 
I definitely think that a lot of my designs are very, um, they're very grounded. They're, uh, there's a bit of practicality to them. I think that that is, that speaks to my Ohio Midwestern roots to a certain extent. Well, tell us more about it. As somebody said to me, you're described as a classic jeweler. I would agree because I do believe in classic lines. I believe in jewelry that's functional, but also has a sense of sophistication and elegance to it and timeless. And I think that I try to incorporate that in terms of it, with the stones that I choose and select, the colors, how they are positioned, and also the metals that I use. And I'd like to believe that what I design for people is something that you can wear all the time. And I also want it to be something that you feel like you always want to wear because it makes you feel good and you have a sense of um, connection with it. And I think that that also comes from my Ohio roots and sort of growing up and seeing lots of <clears throat> people, women, my mother's friends, my mom, they loved their jewelry. They loved collecting jewelry, jewelry that either was given to them by someone or that they bought for a specific uh, time or purpose or special occasion. And I think that those kind of create stories that are important in our lives because when you wear that piece of jewelry, it has an emotional, emotional connection to you. Mm. And that's mm. what I try to create with my pieces. I do a tremendous amount of engagement rings and wedding bands and bridal jewelry. And a lot of my clients come to me and they really are looking for something that has meaning and that has that special connection to them and, and something that they want to wear, their you know, beloved to wear and to feel that they bought that for them and that it was given with intention and meaning. I work with a lot of guys, obviously. And the thing that I love is that they're so involved in the process. And I think they come to me because I do a tremendous amount of custom work and we discuss picking the stone and creating the ring. And it really makes this event out of it. And I think it makes it very memorable instead of just walking into a store and saying, I'll just take that. So I think all of those things are building blocks to relationships and giving jewelry meaning beyond just the physical nature of it. I know our podcast hearers won't be able to see what I can see, but are you wearing your own jewellery right now? I am wearing some pieces of mine. Yes, I am. I am. And just describe what, what it is you're wearing and what you feel about the design of what you're wearing. Okay, so I'm wearing um, emerald and diamond huggies. They're small hoops uh, and 18 karat yellow gold. And I happen to love to wear these because they are just enough sparkle on my ear. I think that earrings are the best way to dress up something, the quickest way to do it and to sort of change the tone of whatever you have on. So for me, I, I do make a lot of earrings and these are perfect because I can put them on, I can take the subway with them on, I can you know go out to dinner later on, I'm going out for cocktails, I can still have these on and it's just a little bit of pop. And I happen to love emeralds because of the color and the beauty. And they're just sort of like one of my favorite stones to work with. They're very soft stones, so they don't uh, work so well all the time in everyday rings, but in terms of earrings and necklaces, they're fabulous, so. They're very attractive. Uh, they look very strong. <laughs> Thank <laughs> so you. Now, Lola, welcome. And do, I'd be so grateful if you would just give all our listeners an introduction to you 
as an expert jeweller. Just tell us a bit about Lola. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'd be delighted. So um, I was born and raised in London, and um, I came to jewellery as a second career. My first career is as um, a corporate counsel. So I'm a high-tech attorney, and I've been that for over 20 years. I think I was eight years into my career when I just felt that um, I needed to do some. I needed to explore my creative potential. So I looked at a, a number of different things, and then one day I happened into a silversmithing class at a local art school, and um, it was that was it. I was instantly hooked and started learning the craft of jewelry making. Then I moved from jewelry making to focusing on being a designer of fine jewelry because I quickly realized in that in that two year period that I didn't have the um I didn't have what it takes to be a maker and to make each and every piece. I think that was a sort of a romantic notion. And then once you get into it a little bit, you I think people then decide, am I going to be an artisan or am I going to be um a conceptual designer who designs and then has other people make the pieces? So I've been putting out collections, not for very long, since 2015. I put out my first collection and um, I've been working with Melanie for a couple of years and got to know a really incredible cohort of of fine jewellers. The jewellery you're wearing now, which I can see and I hope our listeners can imagine, is this your own creation? Yes, indeed, indeed. And how long does it take you to make jewellery of such distinction? Like the the ones the earrings you're wearing now are very strong and powerful. Oh, I'm happy that you've said that because I like the um I think of the work that I do as African modernism. So it's powerful and strong, but it's also it's not necessarily representational. So it's not um because some people say, Oh, you're an African jeweler and they're I think some people are expecting me to sort of show up with a spear and some you know, these old motifs. And um that's not what I do. I take the motifs that go along that, that that I've seen around me all all my life growing up, but I still want to infuse them with a European jewelry aesthetic, and um, with a, with sort of an African um, um, identity um, running underneath. So to conceptualize and put together a collection that takes a certain amount of time. But then once I've got the you know, the idea, the the running theme. So these earrings are, I call them the Pentagon earrings, and they're from the beaded collection. Then the pieces that come in that collection, they come relatively quickly. But the putting the whole concept together and deciding, you know, which pieces, how many pieces you'll have for the neck, how much armwear you'll have, that can take a considerable amount of time. I'd say it it takes me, it took me a year to come up with this collection. Mm, Wow, very powerful and very strong. I was interested in your comment about people expecting spears and feathers and things of that nature. It's shocking, actually. Some of the things that people say in innocence, or one might also call it ignorance, but it's shocking some of the things that people expect to hear and see when when they hear that, you know, when they can identify you as a person of, of African origin. I'm a person of African origin, but I'm also a person of British origin. So I describe myself as Anglo-Nigerian. Now, Louise, Maggie Simpkins, what's your history? My household was one of a lot of creativity. Um, Both of my parents were artists, not in the professional sense, but in the true sense of just we made everything. That was just what we did. It was very much a lifestyle. I didn't 
I don't think I ever had a store-bought Halloween costume. We made Halloween costumes. That's what you did. So I, I just grew up making things. And um, jewelry was one of those things. So I have been making jewelry really my whole life since before I can remember trying to keep track. Um, but I sort of fell into it as a career um, as a young person. I was uh, 20 maybe 20. I dropped out of college and I fell and I was living in Los Angeles and I fell into doing it professionally because I realized that I knew how to do it. It was just one of those things that I had always done. And I kind of, you know, I just took job after job after job and just learned along the way. I don't like the term self-taught because that feels like I just came up with everything on my own, but there was a lot of experimentation and question asking and spirit, you know, experimentation and quit. I would go home, I would save my, my money and I would go home with like, I would buy, you know, a couple saw blades and the hardest piece of wax you could find. And I would just, you know, experiment at home. And it was a, it was a slow kind of start. I feel like in a long journey to where I am now, but that was, you know, 14 years ago. Um, The journey has been a great uphill, hasn't it? It's been incredible. Yeah, it's been really, you know, I look back at that time and I don't think that I could have ever imagined that I would be where I am today. Like, I I don't think I ever would have pictured 14 years ago in my bachelor back house apartment with like wax carvings on my kitchen floor. You know, it's just like I'm sitting in a hotel room in London about to do our second exhibition at Sotheby's and I think that that kind it still blows my mind it still is like I'm not really sure I pinch myself all the time and I'm just kind of like all right this is this is where we're at you know you you sell to many well-known stars you know I feel like living in Los Angeles maybe that's a little bit of the territory it kind of isn't even anything that it's, it's honestly, it's neither here nor there really and truly. And I think because I'm in Los Angeles and because early on, you know, so much of the beginning was someone, a stylist pulling a piece for an artist to wear. And it, it, whether it's, it doesn't matter. It's really, really and truly like as a maker, my biggest thing is as long as the person who's wearing the piece connects with the piece and loves the piece. For me, it's all, as long as as long as it's like really felt and appreciated and like loved, that's like and, the, all I could ask for. And just give us a sense of the pricing scale of your jewelry. <laughs> I know you go very high. So traditionally, so I do a lot of one of a kind engagement rings and because mm. we're working with, you know, everything is up until this point, everything's been pretty custom. And so there is flexibility around what materials are we using to create a certain style. Generally speaking, my commissioned projects start around five to 7,000 US dollars for an engagement ring. Um, and then, you know, because the precious, precious materials we're working with, it's all about kind of the quality of these stones that can go all the way to a million dollars, as we've seen. I think for us, you know, it's art, um, which is probably why sometimes we don't talk about prices or we it's about meaning. And often that meaning is is affected by um, and elevated by what's happening in society. So definitely from my point of view as a curator, um, 
the work which is coming out, which, you know, Lola and Maggie and the other designers and, and artists have created, um, is a reflection of where we are now, right, at this moment in society. And, you know, I think, you know, we've had a killing recently of Chris Caber in um, London. You know, the, the problem hasn't gone away because we've moved on to other things in the news. It's still the same. You know, you're still... Uh, a lot more likely to get shot and killed in the street um, as a black man uh, than anyone else and often with no justice. So I think all realms of life have to address that. You know, the designers address um, how they feel about black culture um, and art through their work. I talk about it in a maybe slightly more political way, but everyone can do something. And this is what we're doing to honour that situation the people who have been hurt because it could it could be any one of us and we, we can't let it go and we also have to then think about how that affects the perception of who we are and what we produce so I think for from my point of view the whole point is to have shows like this to show at the very best of who we are we are world class um, and you know to get a higher profile for the designers but also for people to collect um, at a very high level um, and for people to see what we can do when we come together. How will you all begin to reflect on the realities from the killing of George Floyd? How will you begin to think about that when you're, as it were, you're demonstrating great artistry and expensive product and beauty and creativity and imagination? How will you reflect on also the injustice that we've seen? During the pandemic and then with George Floyd, I did not know how my business was going to survive. I think we were all shut down. The entire city was closed for three months. People were really sort of having to retool and refigure how things were going to go. And I was shocked and amazed at how many people contacted me because they Googled Black Jeweler. And I think that George Floyd, really his death and everything, the aftermath around that really elevated the need for people who had not been seen to be seen. And that trickled down in every industry and in every way, including our industry. And so I think that people of color, young people of color said, I really want to support someone that looks like me in this business. And I want to do that because I want a connection to something that is so important, like an engagement ring, a wedding band, something that's a keepsake. And so my business really saw an uptick during the pandemic because of that. As a young woman and as the daughter of a social worker, uh, who's, you know, I felt very kind of, frustrated but also torn because I've chosen this life of like art and so I think I you know in times of injustice I always think about my mom and all of like the warrior advocacy work that she did for other people um and just like being really reminded of like knowing how much work needs to be done and so you know specifically in 2020 during the uprising one of the things that I tried to do was instead of like channel this sadness or grief or guilt for not doing more into like the spiral of what can we do? What can we do? 
Um, I kind of tried to think about it like we all have our own unique gifts and talents that we share with the world. I'm not a social justice warrior. I don't need to lead that movement. I need to sit down and let someone who is a professional lead that movement. But for me, one of my calls to action was like, how can I use my talent to help support the movement, you know? And so I had partnered with one of my diamond dealers to do kind of like a fundraising, you know, we auctioned off a ring that I made and ended up raising actually close to $80,000 for the movement, right? And so, and inspired, got like a whole whirlwind and inspired other jewelers to do theirs. I had people reach out to me saying, I am a therapist. You inspired me to raffle off my services to other people. And so it was a really cool chain reaction where it was kind of just community coming together and saying like, you know, cause it was in the middle of COVID there was protests. We were like, wait, are we supposed to be locked down? Or are we supposed to be in the streets? And it's like, you know, there's not a right or wrong answer, but how do you participate in this conversation and how do you um, participate? Like, how do you use your time to help better or further or, and just like collectively as a community for someone to be inspired to then get involved in the way that they can get involved. I think that that really, that type of thinking really helped me feel like I could make a difference in my microcosm. People have taken it upon themselves to educate themselves about actual injustice and what's going on. That is, you know, the bare minimum of what we could hope for in moving forward. You can't eat an elephant, you know, you eat an elephant bite by bite. And this is a long, long, long fight. But I think, you know, what Melanie did putting together this group is an example of something that is so powerful. It doesn't need to be connected to George Floyd for this to be full circle connected to George Floyd. Do you know what I'm saying? Like what she did was so powerful, the elevation. And I think the thing that I go back to is the storytelling, right? So for a young person who might look like me to be able to see me and hear my story, I wouldn't have believed my story 14 years ago when I started. So just that, those small incremental things, like the elevation, I think, like of, of the human spirit is, you know, it's just one part of this big puzzle that we just kind of keep having to build. Melanie, this must bless your heart to hear this. Well, it's what I hoped would happen. I hope that we would, you know, I, I, before 2020, I would talk to people in different areas of jewellery and we kind of knew about each other, but we didn't ever really, everyone's so busy and, you know, everyone's fairly successful in their own right, as we've seen from Maggie and from Lola. So, you know, coming together took an event, really. And I, I do think we've created a community. And I have to say hats off go to Sotheby's for actually saying yes to the idea. I really was quite surprised when they said yes very quickly. You know, we we don't see ourselves. I mean, like when I was at school, no one said, why don't you become a writer? Why don't you become, you know, uh, a curator? They said, go and work in a bakery. And that was the most you could hope for, you know, that in terms of aspiration, in terms of opportunity, in terms of someone saying, why don't you do something? And I knew at that at eight years old, that I wanted to do more than that. And everyone said, no, 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 you'll just be disappointed. That's where it starts. We've got to start at school. We've got to say to people, to, to kids, you could absolutely do anything you want. And actually, here's the evidence. 
that is one of the highlights for me at the show when some of the kids came in and they were like, all these people, I could be this person. And, you know, people brought their children and it was, it was lovely to see. And I, I wish I'd had that. And Lola, when you, when you pull together uh, some of your creations for this ex- exhibition, um, will you, will you seek to have a theme of representation behind it or will you let it just speak for itself? So I was lucky enough to show last year when we did this for the first time in New York, which was an incredible experience. And for that, I put together, I was, I think the brief then was to show something oriented towards a high jewelry feel. And that went, it went beautifully. And so I stretched myself. I don't typically work um, with high-value diamonds or high-value precious stones. I really enjoy working um, with pure metals. I, I use diamonds sometimes, but often more as an accent than than a centerpiece. So I, I enjoyed that experience of stretching myself last year and making um, my version of, a, of some high jewelry pieces. This time around, I think it's a little bit more, we're aiming to sort of be a little bit more democratized. And so the pieces that I put forward are a lower price point. But as Melanie said, it's really not about the, the, the price, it's more of the feeling. So the feeling this time is um, pieces that represent cultural identity, pieces that affirm cultural identity. And I put together three pieces that, that all have their roots in, in Yoruba culture. So I'm from Southwest Nigeria, so I'm Yoruba ethnically. And the three pieces that I put together all exemplify one aspect or one motif that's really strong in Yoruba culture. So I have a piece that is that works on the beaded theme. I have another piece that also works on the beaded theme, but it also it represents um, sort of a religious relic in Yoruba culture. And I have another piece that uses diamonds in a in an interesting way, not so much in the in the big solitaire way, but smaller diamonds all pulled together. Um, to represent the the richness of the mineral table of the earth in in Nigeria, so it's already around African identity, um, and I think it has that feel. While at the same time, I still I still put the very ele- elevated and elegant pieces. Cheryl, if you were going to a store to purchase jewelry, where would your priority place be? That's a really good question. Someone asked me that yesterday and I was talking about, because I, my place is located in Rockefeller Plaza and that puts me on Fifth Avenue. So quite often when I'm looking for inspiration, I'll take a stroll up Fifth Avenue and you have all the majors there. You have Tiffany, uh, Bulgari, Graf, Van Cleef, all of the major luxury, Cartier, all the major luxury jewelers are there. And Quite often, I love going into all of the boutiques and seeing what's happening and and get very inspired by what they do. But I do enjoy going into Tiffany. And I do enjoy that because I consider it to be such an iconic American brand for many reasons. And I love the fact that there's such a wide variety in terms of price points and materials that they use that really kind of speak to the type of buyer that comes to see me, that client. So I often go in there just to kind of get a sense of what's happening. I think that 
what they do is very traditional in a lot of ways, classic, clean, the same type of jewelry that I tend to make. They also do a lot in colored gemstones as well as diamonds. I happen to do a lot of work in diamonds, colored diamonds. You get to see sort of the landscape in a different way than you would in some of the other smaller sort of um, luxury boutiques. I'm a member of the BIJC, which is a Black and Jewelry Coalition. And that's a group of people in the industry who are trying to support other people of color and designers and to create uh, resources for them. And I often say to new designers, including some that I mentor, that it's important to attract a buyer, but you also have to create and produce something of quality and something that is competitive. Because if you don't, it doesn't matter. You will only have that buyer once, they will not return. And in order to maintain and grow and have any sort of lasting you know, measure in this business, you really do need to have those qualities behind whatever you do. And so I think that those are the big factors. It's really making sure that people know how to get in touch with you. I think that there's a lean in on that touch point right now because people are very aware of who they are buying from, and that we are all connected, and that your money does matter. Your dollars, how you spend it consciously. And would you say you can see unique attributes of Black created jewelry? Yes, I do. I do. I think that, you know, talking about sort of like my style versus other people's style, I tend to be more traditional in terms of what I do. But I do think that it's great. And this show was a great example of that. You're seeing a lot of different unique styles, Afrocentric styles, styles of jewelry that probably never would have gotten any attention before or not be on such a high platform as Sotheby's. So I think that those things are key because I do think there's a buyer for everything and for everyone, right? That for every person out there. And I think it's just about creating the awareness and the platform in order to attract that person. And that is also an outgrowth of what happened during the pandemic and George Floyd. We now have access in ways that we never had before. And it was really remarkable, wasn't it? When Sotheby's decided to get behind Black Jewelry, the, the Brilliant and Black series that they have launched has been quite remarkable and a beautiful exhibition. So what is it, what does it arouse in you? What are your initial thoughts about it? Well, thinking about the first show of Brilliant and Black, I think that what was so amazing to me was to be in a room full of other people like me that I did not even know existed. Here in New York City, I may have known of two of the designers that were in the show. And to meet the other dozen or so was just wonderful. And I think that that experience of coming together and in such a collaborative spirit. There was no competitiveness. There wasn't, we were all just happy to support each other. And that was also rare. And then to help each other creatively. Uh, I speak of Castro who, you know, passed uh, recently and he was a dear friend of mine. And I met Castro in New York almost 20 years ago. He walked into my retail space and just introduced himself. And he was from Toledo, Ohio, and I was from Cincinnati. And we struck up a conversation and he was just this brilliant creative force. 
And we always chatted and kept in touch even when he moved to Turkey. And he was the one who introduced me to Melanie. And the great thing about Castro was that he sort of knew almost everyone in the show. He was kind of like the linchpin and he was unapologetically, brutally honest about everything. And so I kind of weaves back to that experience of collaborating with everyone when he would say, you know what? I think you could do better on this piece. I think that this could be better. I think that that sucks, whatever. And we would talk about this and it would, it was, but it was wonderful because it came from a place of love and wanting us to be the best that we could be. And that's what that first Sotheby's experience was like. It was like, wow, we're all here together and we all want the best for each other. And was that really the seed of the, the Black Jewelry Coalition? Actually, the Black Jewelry Coalition was, I want to say, maybe before the Sotheby show. It was, actually, because they asked me to be on the advisory board um, maybe about four or five months prior. And they did attend the show, and they were very supportive, and they've been very active at JCK. They uh, had a wonderful showcase of, of black designers there. And they have really leaned in with and partnerships with other larger companies here to really support black designers on the retail level and on the source level, resource level. So there are a number of levels at which black designers, jewelers, manufacturers are really getting attention now and profile and opportunity in a way that wouldn't have been there three years ago. Oh, completely. I, this did not exist three years ago. I'm here to tell you, I've been in this business for over 20 years. And for a major portion of that, I was the only woman of color with a retail space on 47th Street. Mm. When I first started in this business, there were no women of color, um, Black American women of color. And I worked for a diamond manufacturer and I was in and out of diamond buildings and building, you know, retail spaces on 47th Street, and I never saw anyone that looked like me. Because mm. we often say that representation is so important to be able to see black people who are in every sector and leading with such distinction and quality in every. And we often say it, but we don't often, as it were, see it. There is a distinction about being a black creative. And just find a word or two that to you symbolizes what that distinct black creative is. If you're having to describe this to a group of people in a lift who just didn't understand, you've only got four floors to go. <laughs> what would your word be about why a black creative jeweler is so different? I would say poetic. I would say there's a grace and a beauty to the black story. Mm. And I think everyone needs to hear it, whether you're black or not. And I think, you know, we have an insight to a very, very old, very ancient tradition, which is also modern, very highly technical, very technology based. And I think through that, we can express, you know, our ongoing journey. Well, thank you all for your time. Thank you for providing so many deep insights into this fascinating industry that's full of mystique and alluring magic. We all want more of it. We all wish you could afford more of it. I wish I could speak so much longer all day with you on the good things that you're doing. But of course, you must draw to a close. Thank you so much to Melanie Grant, Maggie Simpkins, 
Cheryl Jones and Lola Olonjoy, and of course the Sotheby's for Brilliant and Black London. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to BBI's You're On Mute, which is available on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, and wherever you consume your podcasts. But for now, goodbye.